Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35 is where I'll be reading, following in your own Bibles as I read out loud. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the words are on the screen for you. Hear God's word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order, to, in order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as, as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who, had, who would proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Continuing on, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders of the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers with the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and have troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual morality. And if you keep yourselves from these things, you will do, where, do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and gathered the congregation together. They delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were with themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. 
But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching others, teaching and preaching the word of the word with many others also. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. Well, here in the midst of, um, in Acts 15, what we have is the gospel is advancing and has been advancing rather rapidly and quickly. And in fact, we, uh, as we looked at the last two weeks, as we looked at the, what was the first considerable um, and very intentional missions trip taken by the early church, where churches were planted over much of uh, the Middle East and uh, Asia Minor, excuse me. And um, what is happening is, the, so the gospel is moving forward and it is advancing, but it's at this moment that Paul and Luke, as the writer of the account of Acts, stops the account of the advancement of the gospel and gives us a detailed account of what many refer to as the first church council. Now, in the history of the church, there um, have been a number of councils where essentially the vast majority of the church gather together, representatives of the church from around the world will gather together in order to debate and discuss and come to a consensus in regards to particular theological positions and how to address particular things pastorally as well. And this church, this church council, like many church councils, the reason it comes about, do I sound too loud? I sound tingy. Anybody else getting that ring or is it just me? Yeah? Okay. So because I'm turning me down just slightly, I can be loud enough. Uh, the, what happens often is um, these watershed moments where these councils occur, they occur because of threats to the church. And this is what happens here. This is a watershed moment in the life of the early church in which this early church council, this first church council, will bring theological clarity to the gospel and what the gospel means. But usually councils do so in the face of problems, in which the church usually has a beliefs that are a consensus, but they don't come together and articulate that consensus altogether until there begins to be teachings in the church that defy that consensus. And so that is what is going on here. There are those who are beginning to threaten the gospel and threaten the church and threaten the proclamation of the mission of Jesus Christ. And so it's in that context that they gather together. This has been the case in many of the church councils. For example, uh, one of the most famous ones is the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, in which the, the theological consensus that was beginning to develop amongst uh, theologians and amongst the churches in the known world at that time was that Jesus and his nature was that he was fully God and he was fully man. These two natures in one person. And so that this, this consensus had grown, but there began to be a group within the church led by a man named Arius and his group, which were known as the Arians, that began to hold a different view, which was that Jesus was less than God, that he was indeed just a mere man. And so the church gathered together in 325 and it began, begins to debate this issue. is how should we understand the nature of Christ? And it is out of that debate that we get what has become the, 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 what we got is the Nicene Creed and what is a critical statement in the theology and the doctrine of Christianity, which is that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. And he needs to be both. He cannot be Savior and he cannot be Lord if he is not both fully God and fully man. And so it is in that context of those who would threaten the truth of the God's word that often the church gathers together to clarify what God's word is saying. And so as Luke shows us here, in the midst of the advance of the gospel, the church must pause to ensure that the gospel is not undercut. They must pause to do some theological work to face this threat. 
And so that's what I want to look at this morning. So the two main headings this morning to, to look at, first is this, is the threat to the gospel. As the threat to the gospel is what we want to look at, and then we'll look at the defense of the gospel in a little bit. First, the threat. Let's just give an, un, an overview of what is going on. And verses 1 and 2 provides us the kind of the lines of the debate going on in chapter 15 and at this church council. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. That means they came from Judea and they came to Antioch, and they began to teach them this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go to Jerusalem and to the apostles to ask about this question. Now, here's what this debate is all about. Let me explain what is going on here. Is that the early, most of, if not all those early Christians within the early decades of the church were Jews. And because they were Jews, they had been raised under what is known as the Mosaic Levitical Law. The Mosaic Levitical Law um, requires many things about cleanings and ceremonial rituals. But the primary one that leads all the ceremonial rituals was the one given first, which is the sign of circumcision. And because the sign of circumcision was the sign of the covenant, it given to Abraham and then given to all of Israel, it meant that when you talked about circumcision, you were talking about all the other clean laws that were in the rest of the Old Testament. In other words, it, rep it was the representative rule that brought in all those rules you see. You go and read the Old Testament in Leviticus, and you're going, what in the world? Why do they have to wash like this? And, and why can't they go in the temple when this is going on, when they've done this and when they've touched that? Those are these clean Levitical ceremonial laws. But the chief amongst them is circumcision. And years after God had given the sign of circumcision to Abraham, he then gives all these laws to Moses and to Israel. Now, the early Christians followed these things, they followed the Levitical laws, and they particularly followed the sign of circumcision because they were Jews. This is a part of their practice. This is what they did. But what happens when the gospel begins to go out into the other areas of the world, when it expands beyond Jerusalem and Judea, and it goes to pagans and to the Gentiles, what happens is they do not follow the Levitical laws. They are not getting circumcised. And this is where the debate lies. Paul and Barnabas are telling them, no, you don't have to become a, a Jew. And that's what it meant to take on circumcision. That this, the point of circumcision was to say you are set aside. That you have this physical act done to say that you are now different. You are set aside from the rest of the world. And what often what the church, early church was saying, what these Judaizers were saying, these who were coming from the Pharisees were saying, was if you, in order for you to be a true Christian, you also have to first become a Jew. You have to take on the sign of Jewishness and carry on all the practices and traditions of Jewishness. Now, to understand, now this appears to us maybe not to be as important as they understood it to be. Because the stakes here, as they take it, is that this is a matter of life and death, of salvation or damnation, of heaven or hell. To tell these folks, these Gentiles, these pagans, that you must not only believe in Jesus for your salvation, but you must add something to it, is changing the nature of salvation itself. The stakes cannot get higher. You understand what they're saying? They're not simply saying, these Jews who are coming and communicating this, are not simply saying that, yes, you are saved by believing in Jesus, and we want you to do some extra things. That's not what they're saying. You see in verse 1, they're saying that you have to be circumcised, and essentially that meant you have to become a Jew, in order to be saved, verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of, of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
So they are adding to what it means to be salvation. This is no longer grace alone. This is no longer salvation through the work of Jesus alone. This is Jesus plus something. We talked about that when we talked about in Colossians. And this undercuts the very heart of the good news that Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming to the world. It undercuts the very freedom that the gospel offers us in Jesus Christ. You see, what makes Christianity so unique, and this is unique, many you know, people will talk about this, um, sociologists will look at this, a religious sociologist will look and say, listen, the religions of the world have this, these similar backgrounds. And that is true in their ethics and their morality. There is often a lot of similarities. But the radical difference between Christianity and every other religion is this, is all other traditional religions say this, is you do this, this, and this, and you can earn the right to be in the presence of God. And Christianity has flipped that and said, no, God has done all that is necessary. There is nothing left for you to do to be made right with God. It is by his grace and his grace alone. And so if we begin to say that salvation, that being with God, if pleasing God comes from trusting in Jesus plus doing this, this X, Y, and Z, then we have altered the nature of the gospel itself. And if you've altered and you've put an incredible burden on people, think of the burden that this would have put on Gentiles. But even just think about some of the burdens that you feel, the things that we put upon people to saying it's Jesus plus this. So many times the struggles and the weight that we feel is the burdens of thinking that we, in order to please God, in order to be right before God, is we have to follow X, Y, and Z. And it's an addition to what the gospel actually communicates and we, we, there's freedom, though, in the gospel. Think of the freedom that says that you are no longer, it is no longer what you do that saves you. It's no longer what you do that keeps you in the state of salvation. It's what God has done and what God has done alone. You see, the gospel is spiritual freedom. And to add to the gospel anything and require it of anybody is to undercut and return us to a place of slavery. And this is actually what Paul talks about. And Galatians chapter 2, he's looking back to the council in Acts chapter 15. And he's referring back, and he actually sa- and he says this. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And this is the kicker. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they may bring us into slavery again. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see the force of Paul's language here. That the stakes is this, freedom or slavery, heaven or hell, death or life, the weight of having to save yourself or the beauty of the grace and the freedom that comes from God saving you himself. And the early church had to fight this over and over and over again. And every generation has had to have the same fights. The early church dealt with it. In fact, one of the early church fathers, a guy named Tertullian, dealt with this. It was actually, as historians look back, that Tertullian appeared as he got later on to his ministry, began to add things, requirements upon Christians. Tertullian was like kind of a hardline fundamentalist, and he began to add various rules that, oddly enough, sound very familiar. 
Here's some of the rules that he added that in order to be a Christian, you had to follow. You couldn't go to the theater because of its origins in pagan worship. You couldn't dance because it might inflame ill-controlled sexual passions, he said. And you couldn't wear cosmetics, including deodorant, because he said this, if God meant you to smell like a flower, he would have given you a crop of them on your head. Now listen, if you all stop wearing deodorant, we're going to be coming up with some man-made rules around here. We're going to have welcome, the welcome team like you know, doing the sniff test as you walk in. But this is not, it should never be a requirement for entrance into God's household, for entrance into the church, and to be called a brother and sister in Jesus Christ. And the, frankly, the, tr the truth is that we have this problem today. That we have this pathological need, it seems like, to add to the gospel rules and regulations that are man-made, and that we put them at the level of God's law, and we say that you, we may not say it explicitly, but we treat it as if you must do this in order to be saved. John Orker tells about a woman in the church, and there's a woman like this, or a man like this in just about every church, and here's his description of this lady from a church that he was a part of. She was the most feared person in the church. She was a master at guilt manipulation. She led a Bible study for women, and she was involved in a lot of people's lives, but she didn't love any of them. The truth is, she didn't even like them. Everybody knew at home that she called all the shots, though ironically, she was one of those who was very devoted and outspoken about the doctrine that said that a woman should submit to her husband. In her home, therefore, her husband was the boss, because she said so. And heaven help him if he didn't boss the way she wanted him to. She submitted all right. She submitted to him right into the ground. She was regarded as a spiritual giant, but she could not love. She lived to complain. She complained about her grown children who did not treat her right, about her neighbors, about money, about change, any kind of change in life in general. When her life went through changes, she would oppose, when her church went through changes, she would oppose them. Not so much because she didn't like the changes, so much is because she didn't, it meant she would be less in control. The changes were opening the church up to unchurchy people who didn't do things that she thought that they should do, and she didn't want those people there, people who didn't look or think or dress or vote like she did. Not long ago at that church, there was a church split. It involved ugly and vicious behavior, and this visible body of Christ was cut into two. And the changes that had threatened her sense of control were gone, along with all those unchurched people. Things were as churchy and stilted and inaccessible to those on the outside as ever before, and this was her comment to a friend. Isn't it wonderful? We got our church back. People like that are in every church on every corner in America because of the pathological need, pathological need to say, I have my way is right. My way of right. And what is most troubling is not that these people exist, though, or even that such people exist in the church, right? Because the church is for broken people, people who have control issues, people who are legalists. The church is for legalists as well, maybe especially for legalists. But what is most troubling is that in church after church, these people are not seen as the weaker brother. They're seen as the spiritually superior brother. And that is the problem. That is the problem. How do we see, how do we see this in the church? And this is such a problem in churches that young pastors have to be, they have to be warned about it. In fact, a, a book that has become a, a must-read for young pastors, a book called Unintentional Dragons. It's appointment reading for us. 
in which it is a book that, in which it talks about uh, the various people in the church who mean so well and think that they are defending the gospel and defending all that is right in the world, and yet they are controlling and obnoxious and self-righteous and often neurotic and pathological, and they destroy churches. Just as these in verses 1 and 2 are trying to destroy the church in Antioch because they undercut the gospel with all of their extra rules and their man-made laws, and we do this as well. We still do this. Now, these may be some low-hanging fruit, but you think about some of the extra-biblical prohibitions, even the last century, that we've put on Christians. You know, the classic ones, no drinking, no dancing, no smoking, and don't go with people who do, right? No dress. Well, you dress, there's rules about that. They're unspoken. But you might see conferences. I remember seeing a youth conference. It was about why people, women should not wear spaghetti strap shirts. Now, listen, I, I probably won't let my daughters wear spaghetti strap shirts, but I don't think church conferences should be about that. Piercings, no facial hair. Facial hair. I remember in Mississippi in the church, I was at an extremely conservative fundamentalist church in Mississippi before this one, in which multiple times there was complaints about a particular people who were up on stage about the length of their facial hair. That this was the complaint. Philip Yancey likes to tell the story when he was at Moody Bible Institute and said that none of the students there were allowed to have any facial hair. This is one of the, the critical requirements. And you would get demerits and you would be sent home to shave uh, if you had facial hair. But he said it was the ironic thing was that they would march under class every single day under an enormous picture of D.L. Moody, who was sporting, guess what? A massive beard. Listen, this is, this is the reality of what we do. Here's what we do, and this is exactly what's going on in the early church, is the Jews are taking their culture and, and the things that they love about their culture, and they are adding them to the, to the law of God. And not only that, but then they're taking this step further, and they're saying, not only are they added to the law of God, but if you don't follow them, you cannot be saved. This is constantly where the things that we love, the rules in church, let's say one that I've, even, that I've heard here, I hear complaints about, why don't we start right on time? I mean, this four minutes after 10.30 is no good. Do you understand how white that is? <laughs> if you've ever been anywhere else, you know, there is something called white people time and brown people time. This is a well-known way to describe how you understand time and when things should start. You go to church in Brazil, you can start church at 10.30, but they're getting there whenever they want. You start when you want, I'm getting there when I want. And now, listen, we may say, listen, now there, are, there, are, there are positives and negatives to that. But you know what they also do in Brazil? They do family really well. And they do relationships really well. And they sit and they'll talk to people for hours after church. And they'll spend hours and hours and hours with one another because they value relationships. Us white people, we're like, man, you know what? It's noon. I got to get home. That's exactly, but we, it, literally, in the church I was at in Mississippi, if the, if, the, if the service went one minute after noon, there would be a flock of people that would rise up and leave. <laughs> Why do we take non-essentials and make them laws in our churches? Why do we hold people to a standard that, one, the Bible may not hold them to, and then, two, even maybe sometimes raise that up? to the place of salvation. My wife had an experience one time. She was over in Germany. She was studying church history. And she had on her desktop of her laptop her, a picture of her and her roommate. Her roommate was this beautiful 6'1 woman who had a faux hawk. And one of her classmates in this history class, this is a seminary history class, saw the picture on her desktop and said, that's your roommate? Oh, she must not be a Christian because she had short hair. 
You think that these things aren't there, but they're there. And which it's not simply that we're adding, you know, little laws about when church has to be done. But when we begin, we actually bring them up to the place of salvation. That if you have short hair, you can't really be a Christian, can you? This is devastating to the gospel. And the reason why we do this, the reason why we hold to our cultural biases and the traditions and the the laws, our man-made laws, is because of our own insecurity. That we are not secure enough in the fact that you are saved by grace alone. That we think that we're desperate for something that we can add. And we forget that we're made right with God in one way. Through the work of Jesus on the cross. And that is it. Richard Loveless, who is a, a wonderful writer, on the, particularly on the topic of sanctification. But he, he writes about this, this problem that we have. This propensity we have, even, even as Christians. He says, uneasiness about justification. That is the declaration of your rightness before God. An easiness about justification produces a flowery form of asceticism reflecting the unconscious and often unspoken need for lists of clean and unclean activities, and then we have the rebirth of the Pharisaism. Thus, those who are not secure in Christ cast about for spiritual life preservers with which to support their confidence. And in their frantic search, they not only cling to the shreds of ability and righteousness they find in themselves, but they fix upon their race, their membership of a party, their familiar social and ecclesiastical patterns, and their culture as a means of self recommendation, end quote. This is the stakes at at play here. The gospel's at stake. Will we add something to the finished work of Jesus? When he said it is finished, it was either finished or we're going to add something to it. And if we add something to it, it is no longer the gospel of the Bible. And it's no longer good. So, we saved by grace and saved by grace alone. That's the threat. That's the question. So here's the question. How is the church going to defend? How is the church going to defend against this? And we need to learn it because we have to defend against this very same, same thing all the time. Here's how they go against it. First, here's how they respond in the defense of the gospel. First, they respond with really good ecclesiology. That's a 50-cent word. That means that's the study of the structure and the nature of the church. Here's what I want to point out here, what they did. Paul and Barnabas. Here's Paul and Barnabas. This is Paul. He's the most successful missionary and the most prominent member already probably known in the church at this time. He could have said, you know what? You guys buzz off. And he dealt with the debate all by himself. Is that what he did? No. He went to the church in Jerusalem. He gathered together with other elders from around the church world at that time. And they said, we're going to figure this out together. We're going to answer this together. They did theology. They did debate. And they worked out the issue in submission to one another. This is important. Because we live in a radically individualistic world. And that radical individualism does not simply play out in our individual lives, but in the individual lives of churches. See, most churches, the way, the way they're structured is this. There, there, is, there has been, in fact, the way it normally comes out is this. is people take great pride in the fact that they're part of a non-denominational church. You know what you're a part of when you're part of? No, listen, they love Jesus, right? I'm not taking that to a salvation level. I'm just I'm chastising something that I think is unwise. They, they, uh, those who are part of a non-denominational church, what they're saying is we can figure out our doctrine and we don't need anybody else. And in actuality, even though denominations get all sorts of bad names as if we're the divisive ones, in actuality, we live in connectivity and community with one another. And we say, I'm going to submit myself to other churches. 
This is in large part what it means to be a Presbyterian. You don't hire and fire me. Well, you hire and fire me, but you have to do so with the permission of a body, a regional body that evaluates me, that says, this guy is teaching the truth. We won't let you hire him unless he's preaching the truth. This is part of what it means to be a connectional church, and this is actually what we see at the very early instincts of the church is this. The instinct is to say, I want to do theology together. We need to figure out this out together. We need to be in connection with one another. In other words, what we should be is a confessional church. Too often, churches, what we try to do is we try to figure out theology on our own, but you know what? The church has given us 2,000 years of precedence of wonderful wisdom, of people to whom we can submit ourselves to, that when me and the elders get in a room and there's a theological issue and we're not saying, you know what, we got to figure out our theology, we actually have places to go. We have confessional documents to say the church has, has, has left us some work. They've helped us along in this. And so what we see here, the first thing that they do is Paul does not say, you know what, I'm going to take this on all by myself. But they join together and they say, we're going to deal with this debate all together as a connected body. The second thing they do. So first, they get ecclesiologically correct. Second, they get clarity on the gospel. They get clarity. Verses 7 through 11 is where we see Peter stands up in this debate during this council. And he gives four particular truths. He lays down four truths about the gospel and his defense of the gospel. The first thing he says is this. First, that God is the witness to the hearts of the Gentiles. He says, listen, we can sit here and debate all we want. We can sit here and it's our, as eyewitnesses, and this is wonderful, but let's all remember that there's one particular witness that matters more than anybody else, and it's what God says about these people. And God has spoken by giving them the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing, that God's voice is ultimate. The second thing Peter gets up and says is that God has, in God, God has spoken, and God in his speaking has said, I make no distinction between Gentiles and Jews, and I have purified their hearts. That's what God says about them. Now, this we have to dive into just a little bit. That God, when the God, the chief witness, has said you're pure and clean, this is Peter speaking particularly to this issue in the debate about circumcision. It is important to know, if, in order to understand the debate, is that circumcision was part of what it meant was that you were clean, that you were purified, that you were set apart. And so they would cut off in the sign of circumcision something that was considered unclean. Now, listen, should, do we need to make a joke? Are we, do we, or can we... Can we handle circumcision? Are we going to be okay with circumcision this morning? Right? Circumcision was a bloody, a nasty, difficult sign. You got to think about what Abraham was thinking about. Like, right? You got to ask your question, like, God, is this really the sign you want to give me? The guy goes, yes. But God, Noah got a rainbow. Uh, <laughs> could I get a rainbow? No, here, the sign of circumcision was a cutting off of something that was considered dirty. I'm impure as a sign, a physical symbol that communicated that you were clean, that you were set apart. And what Paul is saying and what Peter is saying about the Gentiles is that they may not have received the outward circumcision, but it doesn't matter because they've received the circumcision that matters. And as, Peter, as Paul describes it in Colossians chapter 2, is they've received the circumcision of the heart. Paul says that in, in, in Christ, a type of circumcision far more significant than outward physical circumcision has occurred. Something much greater, a cleanliness that is much greater. You see, the sign in the sign of circumcision was saying it was pointing to something greater. It was a physical act that was pointing to, pointing to a spiritual reality. And what's the spiritual reality? 
It was saying that in order to be in relationship with God, you need to have what cut off? The foreskin of your sin. That's what has to be cut off. That it's saying that there's something nasty inside of you that needs to be cut out of your life. And that is the, tr- the teaching of the sign of circumcision. And this is what Paul picks up in Colossians chapter 2. That you are not made pure by the outward sign, you're made pure by the inward sign, he says. In him, you also, speaking about Christ, in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Now what Paul is saying here is that what we need is the, un- is the circumcision of our nasty, sinful hearts. That's what we need. And he's saying that that happened, that has happened. And where did it happen? Where does it happen for Jews and Gentiles alone? It happens on the cross. So the circumcision of your heart happens on the cross when there was one who was cut off. This is the description of what's happening with Jesus, right? It says he is physically cut. He is pierced. He has thorns cut his brow. He has spears in his side. But even more significantly than that, Isaiah 53, in pointing ahead to what happens on the cross, it says this, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And this is the kicker line, for he was cut off from the land of the living. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the means by which your heart is purified and made clean in which your sinfulness is cut out of you, is it's cut out of you when Christ was cut off from the land of the living. Let me be very clear. This is difficult talking about circumcision. But the gospel, the good news is this, is that you had no right to be in a relationship with God because of the uncleanliness of who you are. Not just what you do, but who you are. And that we could be in no relationship with God unless that cleanliness was cut out of us. The problem was we are completely unclean. Therefore, someone had to take our uncleanliness upon himself and to be cut off on our behalf. Had to take the sinfulness that was in us and be cut off on our behalf so that we may be right with God. So we may be clean and pure before the eyes of God. And that's what Jesus does on the cross. He takes your sin upon himself and he is cut off from the land of the living. He is circumcised in the language of the Old Testament, in the language of Paul in Colossians chapter 2, so that you and I may have life. And what, what Peter goes on, he says, that the point of this is this, that if that circumcision is ultimately not about what happens to you outwardly, but it's what Jesus does to you inwardly, then it does not matter whether the Gentiles are circumcised or not, and therefore we should make no distinction between them and us. Because God has made no distinction. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're brown, black, white. It doesn't matter who you are. It matters about whether God has changed your hearts. That is the issue. There is literally, it says, there is no distinction between them. This brings to the third thing that Peter wants to say in his defense of the gospel. He says this, that we shouldn't try to keep, have them keep the laws of circumcision, all the unclean laws, because we couldn't keep them anyways. In other words, in our, in our vernacular, what I would say is this, in his gospel clarity, he would say, when you're communicating the gospel, you have to show people that you actually, you can't keep the law. You can't make yourself right with God. What does Peter, Peter says here? He says, listen, the logic of Peter's defense is God says they are clean, so why are we telling them they have to be clean by following laws that never made us clean? Because we could never keep the laws perfectly. 
He says the only way we're going to be made right with God is if we keep all those hundreds of Levitical laws over and over, day in and day out, and we keep them perfectly, and we're considered completely clean before God, and none of us have ever been able to do that. So why in the world would we ask them to do it? And this is so often the problem of what we, what we are asking people to do as they come to churches. You want to join God's church, you've got to look like this. First, too often we, we, put, we say, man, is that person a Christian if they're in, involved? At, you're a drug addict. You have to get rid of the drugs before you can become a Christian? No, you become a Christian and then you get rid of the drugs. Now listen, we're going to tell you you should get rid of the drugs because it's destroying your life and your joy in Jesus. But what always happens, the primacy in the scriptures is that God saves first and then he calls for obedience next. Not as a means of saving you, but as a response, a joyful response of your salvation. Right? Even think about, when did the, when did the Israelites get the, new, get the Ten Commandments? Before or after they come out of Israel? After. God saves them, then gives them the law. He's, this is how God has always called us to function. And are we being hypocrites in the church when we ask people to do things that we have not been willing to do ourselves, or that we cannot claim a cleanliness that we're asking other people to perform as well? You can't join us until you're clean like us. Well, that is a foolish statement because if we actually look around at all, we would say, oh my goodness, we are not clean at all. We have blood on our hands. We have sins that we have committed. How can we ask people to do the same? We are clean only because of what God has done for us. The fourth thing that Peter says is he finally just comes to this straight up, flat out, well-stated conclusion. We are saved by grace alone. Verse 11. We will be saved by grace alone, just as they are saved by grace alone. Peter doesn't mince his, mince his words. He says, do you hear the words that are coming out of my mouth? Grace alone. The key part there, we love the idea of grace, but the problem is we don't have that alone part down. And he's alone. That is it, fine, done. Nothing else. And it, what is amazing here and what is incredible to see is, is that Peter does not just say they will be saved by grace alone, but we are saved by grace alone. Not only is he saying that Gentiles, not only do they have to not, they don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved and follow the clean laws, but we don't have to follow the, the, the clean laws. We don't have to follow these things. Jesus has fulfilled them all. They were a shadow pointing to the fact of our need to be made clean, and the thing that makes us clean has come. His name is Jesus, and he's washed us by his blood. That's the good news of the gospel. So first they get their ecclesiology. They do the debate together. Then they get clear on the gospel that it's by grace alone. Not anything you can do, but by grace alone. And then third, they add to this charity. Charity. James, and you have to kind of see the structure of how the church is working. James speaks, and he's essentially the chief jurist. He is closing the arguments. He is saying, we have heard enough debate that when Peter and Paul and Barnabas speak, it's done. We've come to the conclusion. The conclusion was that, one, that Gentiles should be brought in without any problems. We shouldn't put any barriers to them joining Jesus. In fact, he said, I look at the Old Testament, and this has always been God's plan. But then he adds a last thing at the very end. He confirms Peter's argument. Then he says, we have, I have some requests to make of the Gentiles, though. He said that the Gentiles should lovingly abstain from a few offensive practices to Jews. We won't go into exactly what those offensive practices were and why. He mentions about four of them. But what he says is to, what he's saying in the letter is you are saved by grace alone, but we are going to ask you that since you are uniting and joined together, Jew and Gentile alike under Jesus Christ, that we must be charitable to one another. And we must be gracious to one another. 
And that there are some things that you do, Jew, that, you, the, that you Gentiles do, that just creep out the Jews. And it's going to be a barrier for them to have fellowship with you. Things like sleeping with your sister. This is one of the rules. That's what sexual immorality meant. Don't marry your sister. That was a good rule. We're all good with that rule now, right? We're good with that rule. All right, good. Now, we wouldn't be so happy about some of the other rules about not eating the blood in meat because I like my steaks medium rare. And Paul later on says, that's okay. That was just for, you know, that was them giving wisdom for that time and that place. But here's the principle that has been communicated here, that living by grace doesn't mean that we neglect charity to others and sensitivity to cultural desires. As we join together in a community of grace, saved by grace, that we would extend each other the grace of saying, I care about what you care about. For example, if you were to go to Japan and walk into their, someone's house with muddy shoes, like, is, are you going to lose your salvation? No. But is that offensive to them? Yes. Have you put up, a, perhaps you're going to their house and you want to share the gospel. Now, if you don't take off your shoes, is that a barrier to the gospel? Yes, because they're thinking about your stinking feet on their furniture. They don't want your shoes, their nasty shoes, on their carpets. It's a part of their culture. And so you remove the things. Paul says, I become all things to all people so that I might win some for the gospel. And so, yes, we, we submit ourselves, not as a law by which you are saved, but we say, I will submit myself to these things in the freedom I have in Christ Jesus, where I can do what all things are. I can drink to my heart's content as long as I don't get drunk. But I'm not going to glory in it in front of people who think, that's a sin, and who can't handle it. See, Paul talks about this. The very Paul, the man who defends the freedom of the gospel, actually says this in Galatians chapter 13. After going on for three and four chapters about, he actually, he's chastising those who would add laws. But then he says this to those who have embraced the gospel of grace. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You see, the grace, law does not help you serve one another. It makes us little dutiful, we're just dutiful slaves to one another. But what grace allows you to do is to graciously in freedom serve other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. To love them well. And this is what Paul says in Philippians 2.4 as well. That we should think of others as better than ourselves. He articulates the gospel and says, in light of this, think of others. Care for others. So I want to take two quick notes about this. About the way they communicate, the church, in this letter. One, I want you to say, to see here in verse 29, that when the church leaders request of the Gentiles that they abstain from a few activities, they do not say that these things would be sinful if they did them. They don't bring them to the, to the, to the level of God's law. They don't bring them to the level. But what do they say? They say, if you do these things, you will do well. In other words, at the very beginning, they're already grounding these, these wise, gracious say, hey, would you be sensitive to others in this simply, that this is not a law. You're not going to lose your salvation if you don't do this. But would you be gracious? This will help us do well together. Now, that's one, I want, one person I want to speak to. So we, we speak in that way. We don't create new laws. We don't demand these things. Therefore, you, you can't, yeah, you get it. The second person I want to speak to, though, is the person who has problems. Let's take this classic example, the alcohol issue. This has been a divisive issue since Prohibition and before in the American church. You, you are a, listen to me, you are a weaker brother if you think someone can't be a Christian and drink alcohol. You just frankly are. You are denying things the scriptures clearly state. It is, at no place has it said that alcohol is illegal. In, no, in fact, it encourages it in multiple places. 
You're a weaker brother. But here's what we're also going to say. We will not allow for the tyranny of the weaker brother. Here's what, here's what often will happen is, is that we, someone will say, well, you know what? I have a problem with your alcohol drinking. Therefore, you can't do it ever, ever, ever. Well, that, I'm sorry. You don't actually have that, that power. It means when I have you over to my house, I won't serve you. It means I won't flaunt it in front of you. But it means that you cannot tell me I'm not going to bow to every whim of every person in the church who has some little thing that they've got their panties in a wad about. We will not bow to these things, but we will be gracious to one another. And therefore, when we choose in the freedom of the gospel, we will say, I will be sensitive to their needs. I will love them and I will care for them. And therefore, sometimes that means I will abstain from certain things. That means I won't wear certain clothes because I know it's a distraction to certain people. It means I won't speak in a certain way. I won't act in a certain way. Listen, we do this with worship practices as well. You're a Presbyterian church. Listen, if you dance here, you're going to weird the rest of us out. That's just the straight-up truth of it. Listen, but you know what? The Bible actually commands that you dance. So you dance, but you dance in the back. Because there's some people who will not be able to dance, very, who won't be able to worship very well when you start dancing. Right? This is what it means, in which you follow God's law, but you're gracious and sensitive to one another. And you follow that pattern with one another. And so we live under grace. We live under grace, but we... We extend that grace to one another. Now listen, I want to end here. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, to bring us to a close. Paul says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. How do you stay free, brothers and sisters? Because the pattern in the church is, at some point, we begin adding to the gospel. That's always our pattern. And we burden ourselves. Well, the way in which they did it then is they take the gospel, they take this letter, and it says in verse 30 to 35 that Paul and Barnabas and these other leaders, they go and they, they brought them to a place of rejoicing in the gospel, and they daily encourage and strengthen them. The means by which you find freedom and that you never lose it is that you speak the gospel to yourself every day. And you show up to church week in and week out, and you rem- we remind ourselves of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. That is how we stay free. You will have your struggles. You, you, will, you will wrestle with the law of God. You will seek obedience. But you week in and you week out, you must come and you must kneel at the throne of Jesus and say, I am saved by your grace and your grace alone, not by anything I've done or have not done this week. And then we lift our hands in worship to God and we say, praise you that there is not one single thing left for us to do for our salvation. You have done it all. Praise be to the name of Jesus. That's how you keep your freedom. You praise the one who has set you free, and you look to the beauty of all that he has done for you time and time and time again. Let's pray.